All right, well, good evening. Good evening. Good to see everybody tonight. And uh, we're going to be getting into a very important passage of Scripture, and it's kind of along the lines of what we've been dealing with the last couple weeks. And we will be here probably three or four weeks, just a heads up. So when I read the text, just know we will be dealing with this topic for a while. And so the passage that we're in is Matthew chapter 5. Let's go ahead and bow for a word of prayer, and then after that we will dig into this passage, Matthew 5, 27. Father, as we open up the Word of God, I pray that you would help us to have a very clear understanding about what your Word teaches on this very important issue in relation to marriage and uh, sexual purity, and I pray that as we deal with this text that uh, we would understand the very clear teaching of Scripture And help us to recognize how vitally important it is that we think biblically, that we guard our hearts in these areas, that we are very cautious about how we handle our marriages, and that we would have strong and vibrant homes. And uh, help me as I work through this passage of Scripture and as I deal with these topics to address them in a very thorough and biblical manner. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 And we'll read down to verse 32. Here's what the word of God says. You have heard that it was said by them of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. If thine right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off, cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. Now, the passage of Scripture that we're dealing with tonight is obviously one that is very personal, and it's very difficult. And as a pastor, this is the kind of Scripture that uh, sometimes you go, man, what I'm going to be saying about this topic uh, has huge ramifications for people's lives. And I just want to start with this simple statement. No matter where you are in your personal walk with the Lord, no matter what your past history is, I want you to realize that God, in His grace, can forgive you if you have sinned. Uh, God can strengthen you if you are weak. Um, God can bless you in His grace despite the choices that perhaps you've made. And it's important for us to make sure that we keep this in our minds. God loves people even though they have sinned and God desires for us to walk with him and there is always a way forward for us um, even when we have sinned tragically. And so obviously this passage of scripture is dealing with one of the most personal issues that someone could ever talk about and that is adultery, that is divorce and that is the question of whether or not a person is free to marry and all those various questions. And yes, you probably are going, why in the world are we going to spend three or four weeks here? Well, it's because I think it's a passage that we have to be very thorough in our, in our discussion about. 
And what I want to do tonight is I want to start out with answering some important questions that we have to understand if we're going to look at this passage correctly. So first of all, I want to summarize the passage and then we will talk about those introductory pieces. The following portion of the Sermon on the Mount emphasizes the importance of marriage and the danger of disregarding God's design for marriage and sexuality. To put it very simply, we need to understand God's design for men and women, male and female. We need to understand his design for marriage. We need to be sobered by the most common ways that God's good design is undermined in our culture. And we need to obey him fully in all of these areas. And and I would say that I would like to try to teach these things to people before they have gone down a road that is very painful and very complicated. And it really is something that's going to create a lot of trouble for them over the course of their lives. And it's not because God's trying to make people's lives miserable. It's because there are just certain, certain things that happen when we make certain decisions. That's just the way that life works. One of the reasons that God warns us so heavily about this issue is because the long-term effects that follow sinful choices in these areas are extremely painful. And they can create tremendous difficulties for people. But I also want to remind you that we see examples of people who sin tragically and God was still very kind to them. I mean, I gave you the example of David and Bathsheba. There's no question that what David did was not just wrong. It was very evil. It was very, very evil. Yet God still was very kind to David and very kind to Bathsheba. And out of all of the people that he could have had be the next king, God chose that it would be Solomon, the child of Bathsheba. And so that's really a stunning thing for us to consider. And we do need to keep that in the back of our minds. So first of all, we're going to talk about some key terms and concepts that we find in the passage. And I'm going to just run through what these are. And then we're going to take them on one at a time. The first question is, what is adultery? And I know we have teenagers in here. And um, I think that it's very important, guys, that even though you are teenagers, it's important you understand what we're talking about here. Very, very important. Second question is, what is marriage? And you say, why would we have to ask a question like that? Everybody knows what's mar- what, it, what a marriage is. Not America anymore. <laughs> Certainly not. So we will have to address that issue um, in some detail. Okay. And then our third question. I'm trying to get there. Sorry, guys. Our third question is, what is lust? And uh, that's a very important question. And it's going to be interesting when we look at a passage that deals with lust of the flesh. Almost all of the expressions of the lust of the flesh that he talks about are in the area of sexual impurity and anger. Okay? He mentions 17 things and all but three of them are either sexual impurity or some form of anger. It's pretty amazing. What he's basically saying is those are probably one of the, the two most common ways that people sin with lustful passions in the area of anger and the area of sexual impurity. And then the next question we're going to answer, which I think kind of follows from that, is what is the difference between temptation and the sin of lust? And we will talk a bit about that. And then lastly, we will define what what he means by divorce. Okay? So that's where we're going Uh, This evening, we might get through all of them. We may not. We'll see. 
So the question number one, what is adultery? The question or the statement in verse 27 is this. Thou shalt not commit adultery. The Bible warns us over and over and over again about the danger of adultery. In fact, out of all the topics that Solomon camps on in the book of Proverbs, he spends multiple chapters dealing with this topic of sexual immorality. And in Proverbs 6, listen carefully to what he says. He says, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Is that possible? The answer is, of course not. In fact, I mean, to, to think about the picture that he has there, you have somebody who has a hot coal and they tuck it inside their cloak and as they try to hide it, you know what it does? It burns them. And the more they try to conceal it, the more damage it does. It's a pretty amazing illustration. So he says, can someone take fire in their bosom and their clothes not be burned? The answer is, of course not. Can one go on hot coals and his feet not be burned? He says, of course not. So he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her, shall not be innocent. Catch that. So is he that goeth into his neighbor's wife. Whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. Now, God does not have to punish a person in order for there to be terrible consequences for adultery. He doesn't have to do that. Because the simple fact is, there are going to be some really angry people, some really distrusting people. There are going to be a lot of people whose lives are affected by that sin. Okay, if you have children, your children won't respect you when you do something like that. Why is that? Well, because you've completely violated their trust. And you have in-laws, and not outlaws, okay? You have in-laws, you have, you have siblings, you have parents, that, you have a church family, all, all different kinds of individuals that they're, they're affected by these things. So even if God chose not to actually come and, we could say, punish you for this, well, the fact is, you'd have terrible consequences as a direct result, a natural consequence. He then goes on to explain a little bit about what he means by that. He says, men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he's hungry. You know, if somebody is stealing and it's because they're starving, we, we know what they did was wrong, but we do kind of have compassion toward them because we're like, I mean, we don't want you to die. So... It's wrong what you did, but then he says this, but even though we understand that, if he's found, he shall restore sevenfold. It's a pretty amazing statement. He'll give all the substance of his house. But then he says this, whoso committeth adultery with a woman, he lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound And dishonor shall he get, his reproach shall not be wiped away. It does not say that God chooses to not wipe away his reproach. It just states the fact that, you know what, people remember that. People remember that. And so the reason that I bring this up is not because I want to talk about this, not because it's an easy topic, it's because, well, this is the next thing in the scriptures that we're dealing with. And he gives us tremendous, tremendous 
warnings about this issue. The point is this. When you violate the marriage covenant, how do you restore that? You can't walk it back. You can't undo those things. A person can forgive you. A person can extend grace. A person can be kind. But they cannot change the past. And that's the point that he's making. So, any sexual union that violates a lawful marriage covenant is what adultery is. In the strictest sense, adultery is a one flesh union with someone who is not your spouse. However, what Christ is going to do here is he's going to say, that's the strictest sense of it, but there is more to the command than just the physical act of adultery. Okay, In the same way that he says, there is more to the command, thou shalt not kill. In other words, don't murder somebody. There's more to that command than just, well, if you don't kill somebody, then you're okay. You haven't really broken the commandment. He's saying, no, 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 no. There's actually more to it than that. He begins to expound it a little bit. He says, we're not just talking about the physical violation of this law. We're talking about the disposition of the heart that violates the spirit of the commandment. In other words, before a person acts on that physically, they have broken the commandment repeatedly before they get to the place. And so that leads us to another question. What is a marriage? <laughs> okay. I mean, if we talk about adultery being the violation of a lawful marriage covenant, then the question is, well, what is a marriage? And what is a marriage covenant? And this is an important question that we have to understand. And uh, sadly, I mean, if, if we'd have been teaching on this 50 years ago, I guess I wouldn't have to say a lot of what I'm going to say tonight. But um, we do have to say it now because people don't seem to understand what, what a marriage is. A marriage isn't just an agreement. We're going to live together. A marriage isn't just, well, you know, we're going we're to make some kind of uh, promise to each other. And, and we're going to do the best that we can or a marriage is something that involves several components. And so we want to talk about that. But this leads us to a question that the Pharisees asked Jesus in Matthew 19. What's interesting, I know we're not, we're not in the Matthew 19 passage, and I'm not going to expound that passage of Scripture. But this is directly connected back to the Matthew 5 passage. Because what Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount, the Pharisees are going to bring it to him, and they're going to ask this question, and they're going to say, Hey, is it okay too? And they're going to go into this. So let me read to you what it says. The Pharisees also came unto him tempting him saying, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now there's a reason they asked the question. Because there are people that taught, if, if your wife burns your toast and, and, you, and you're tired of it, well just, just divorce her and go marry someone who won't burn your toast. I mean there are people that really taught that. They had so trivialized marriage that that was the attitude that they had. And then there was another camp that had a much more stringent view of this issue of marriage and divorce. But what's amazing is Jesus doesn't address either of those. He goes back to the original intent of marriage. Very interesting. So he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, shall cleave to his wife. They twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together let not man put asunder. It's a lot of important statements that are made there. For instance he talks about a man leaving father and mother 
and being joined to his wife. Okay, so that, that kind of tells us there's one man and there's one woman, not a man and a man or a woman and a woman or a man and two women or whatever, you know, people can come up with because there's a lot of ideas out there. It's a man leaving father and mother and joining to his wife. And then it says, the two of them become one flesh. And he also says, there are no more two, but one flesh. And then he goes on to say, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. It's an interesting way of putting that. In other words, marriage isn't just an agreement between two people. Marriage involves one man, one woman. God joins the two together. They become one flesh. And nobody's supposed to break that bond. If somebody breaks it, they've sinned. They've done wrong. That's what he's saying. Now, of course, they follow up with a question. Well, then why did Moses command it? I'm not going to get into that tonight. I, I could and I will at another time. But Jesus is basically answering their question by saying, if you want to understand what God's will is, then, then look at what the design for marriage is. And you can figure it all out off of just that one, that one passage of scripture in Genesis chapter 3. So it is the lawful covenantal union of one, I'm going to use the word consenting man and one consenting woman for life. Let me break it down so that we get the pieces here that are very important. The first piece is the word lawful. Now, when I say lawful, I don't mean what does the law of your country say is okay? I'm using the term lawful in the term of what does God call a lawful marriage, okay? So, you know, the world can call it whatever they want to call it. I, I, I guess you could say we call it a mirage, right? No, a marriage is defined by God. Lawful means that this is what God commands it to be. So a lawful marriage is defined by God as exclusive to one man and one woman for life. Second word is the word consent. Now, we have to understand that in the Jewish culture, most marriages were arranged. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with arranged marriage. Nothing, okay? If, if your kids... If you and some other family decide you want to, you know, help your kids get together and get married and they're okay with it, no problem, okay? However, that word consent is very important, okay? You shouldn't, a person should not get married because they feel compelled and forced against their will. And what's interesting is when we look at these situations, even where they had arranged marriages, you will see that there was clearly conversation between parents and children and they were like nope or yep okay so they're even though the parents were involved in these arrangements and the people were much younger than obviously people get married today there was still a consenting of the two to be joined together so while marriage could be arranged in biblical time and by the way i'm not saying we should arrange marriages okay but there's obviously nothing wrong with that biblically as long as the man, the, we see some parents and kids like looking at each other, okay, <laughs> sorry. But it could not be forced against the will of the man and the woman. The third word is the word covenant, covenant. A marriage was a formalized agreement that carried with it obligation to listen carefully to families, to society, to one another, and to God. 
So marriage is not just between a man and a woman. It is. But there's obligation also to the society at large. Okay? Why, do we, why, do, why is it that when we have a wedding, people actually go and sign a legal document? Do you know why that is? Because the state of Maryland believes that if you get married, you have an obligation not just to your spouse, but to the state of Maryland. And if you decide you want to, you know, not be married anymore, you're going to have to go through a legal process to untangle that. And you're going to have to stand before judges and they're going to have to figure out how they break everything down. And it's a very, very messy situation. It'd be a lot more messy if you didn't have a legal arrangement. Uh, it, it actually be kind of dangerous to just be very honest with you. And so there's even obligation to, yes, even to our society in a sense, that our society needs strong families. There's a sense in which when a marriage is coming under pressure, I would hope that godly people on both sides of the family would come and sit down with this couple and say, hey, let's work this out. Let's, let's work through this issue. I know things are difficult. I know that things are painful. I know you feel like walking away. But let's try to work this out. Let's get godly people involved. There's a reason that we have witnesses at the wedding. It's not just so that the couple can think, wow, man, I had 150 people at my wedding. Who cares? Okay. It's not about how many people are here. They're there to support you, to celebrate with you, but to witness, to witness what's going on. But when we talk about covenants in the Bible, a covenant involved God. It involved God. In other words, I am promising to my spouse before witnesses and before God. Very, very important. And then the last word is the word consummated. A marriage was to be a one flesh union that was exclusive to one another without exception. And I could go a lot deeper into that, but I'll just leave it there. Lawful, consent, covenant, consummated. So when we talk about a marriage, if it's missing one of those pieces, we have a problem. Okay? Biblical marriage exists not only for the good of the individual, but frankly also for the good of society. I, I don't know if you've thought about this, but God told all of the creation that had male and female that they were to be fruitful and to multiply and to replenish the earth. Okay? I, I, it makes sense, right? What's amazing is he told that to Adam before he had a wife. And it was impossible for him at that time to do this. So what does God do? He creates a wife and he institutes marriage. He did not institute marriage for any other part of the creation. You say, why is that? Well, because we're image bearers. We're moral creatures. We are held to a totally different standard. When, when we bring people, humans, into the world, we are responsible to shape a soul that is going to spend eternity somewhere. And so God ordained marriage so that those children who were the fruit of the union of that marriage would be shaped within the covenantal context of a home where dad and mom are faithful to one another and where dad and mom are covenanted together before God and they take seriously what they're doing in the raising of their children. To be very frank with you, and this is, this is, this is a, a Pastor Joel ticked off at what's going on in our culture kind of a statement here, okay? 
But I, I do not understand why people today want to get married but do not want to have children. I don't understand it. It's unnatural. It goes against the very purpose that God instituted the marriage covenant. He created marriage so that two people would come together and establish a family and there would be a godly offspring. And I understand that not every, not every couple can have children. And that's totally different, okay? But someone who says, I do not want to have children. I don't want it. There's something very, very wrong with that mindset. I'll say sinful. I'll say unnatural. It goes against the purpose for which God created us in many ways. And I, and I think about just, just from a simply practical standpoint do you know how much marriage is breaking down hurts society you ever thought about this you know how much money it costs for most people to go through a divorce anywhere from 15 20 thousand dollars not unusual at all in fact uh there was a stat I, w- I was reading an article about this published in 2022 i think it was fortune magazine they said that the United States, it cost the United States $40 billion a year because of the litigation of divorce courts and trying to figure out everything that's going to go on. $40 billion. That's a lot of money. It really is. Think about how much stress people go under in their work because of what's going on in their homes. I mean, the tremendous turmoil and, and not even being able to like focus and do the work because of the, the, the animosity sometimes that can begin to develop within a home context. I mean, it's very, very troubling, very, very painful. And it really comes down to the hardness of people's hearts. That they just don't want to follow God's plans. There's another article, very interesting. Fortune magazine, singles, he said... Your, your married friends are nine times richer than you. Well, I'll just leave that there. It's got nothing. You don't get married for money, guys. But, but what he was trying to say, uh, it basically is just presenting the fact that when people get married and they have a family, you know what it does? It gives them stability. It helps them to develop long-term wealth. You can look at the statistics on children who are raised in single-parent homes. And I'm not saying this in any way to be a... a, a, a uh, to put any kind of pain in the heart of someone who's raising children. So it, sometimes it's, it's not your fault that you're in the position you're in. I understand that. But the simple fact is that when a child is only raised by one parent, it puts tremendous pressure on them, financial pressures. You look at all the stats of, you know, we could say juvenile delinquency kind of situations. And it's exponentially higher when you have children that are growing up in homes where they don't have mom and dad together. 24 million children in America live in single-parent homes right now, according to a 2023 stat. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is not to, you know, make anybody feel awful. It's to simply say this. God, God tells us this for a reason. He loves us. and He wants what's best for us. Now, I say this to our, our young people who you're not married and you might be a long ways away from that. Maybe not as far, along, far away as you, as you think. I mean, it happens quick as you mature and you grow up. But the, the, the reality is this. 
the choices you make when it comes to who you marry, it's going to affect you the rest of your life. And so it's so important that you choose wisely. It's so important that when you're entering into that season of life, you're in a position of maturity. And I want to encourage uh, folks in here who you've had troubles in your marriages. Talk to your kids about the dangers that led to some of the challenges you had so that they will not be in those positions. And the truth is that God can use the heartaches that we've experienced and the grace that he's given us in those experiences to help those coming behind us to not experience those as well. Question three, what is lust? In verse 28, he puts it this way. Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Now, that statement is not saying if you see something that you shouldn't have because it just passed by you, then you sinned. Okay, there's a lot of things in life that we come in contact with that we really don't have control over. Okay, there's a difference between lust and we could say temptation. Okay, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna make that distinction when we get into that, that part of the lesson. But notice the way he words it. He says, whosoever looketh. Now that is something that has intent behind it. There's a difference between I'm driving down the road and something passes me and I just happen to see it and me going, hey, I know there's something down here. What's going on over here? They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. You are looking with an intent and the intent is to lust after a woman. What does that mean, lust? Well, first of all, I want to mention a warning that is very strong in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Here's what it says. He says, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's such a simple statement. Walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Like, oh, that's so simple. I should just live my life this way. It's easy to say it. It's a lot harder to do it, okay? I mean, we could, we could, we could step, step back and we could put this in lots of other contexts. If anybody has an anger, you know, sometimes you get a little angry with this or that, all right? Walk in the spirit, you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Easy to say it, but how many times do we, you know, we get in these moments where we're, we're angry and we say things we shouldn't, do things that we shouldn't, feel things that we shouldn't, all right? Well, the same thing is, is true in the area of lust. He then goes on to say this, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Now, what he's basically saying is that a person who is a Christian experiences an internal struggle that is different from when they were not a Christian. So, when a person's not a Christian, okay, they know certain things are right and certain things are not, are are wrong. They understand that. But they do not experience this struggle the way that the Bible is describing it. The idea is that there's a part of me that is inclined towards sinful passions, my flesh, And there's the presence of the Holy Spirit inside of me who says, don't look at that. Don't respond that way. That pattern of thinking is wrong. Stop. And there's a struggle between those two. There's an internal warfare for who's going to dominate your thinking and your affections and your actions. 
And so he says, these are contrary to one to the other. They're in conflict. So you cannot do the things that you would. In other words, there are things sometimes you want to do them, and you shouldn't. And there's a part of you that knows you shouldn't, and so you are very conflicted, and that's what's going on inside. He then goes on to say this. But if you be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Another way to put that is that when your fleshly desires are not kept in check, this is what they produce. I mean, we can put it another way. When your fleshly desires are given into or when your fleshly desires are fed, these are the ways that it reveals itself. He goes on to say it this way. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Now, every single one of those, all four of those words are dealing with sexual sins, okay? The first one is talking about people who are married being unfaithful to their spouse. The second one describes any kind of sexual sin. It could be people who are not married. It could be, you, you go into any kind of potential scenario out there, that word covers it. In fact, the Greek term is the term pornea. Maybe you've heard the word pornography, okay? That's where the word comes from, okay? Pornea is describing any kind of sexual sin. Then he goes on to the next word. He says, uncleanness. Now, what he's saying is this is a sexual sin that is very dehumanizing. It's, it's very evil. It's very dark. Unclean. That's in other words, he's, he's, he's basically saying it's like we're taking this to a step that's very unnatural, okay? And then when he talks about lasciviousness, he's talking about sexual sins that you wouldn't even want to talk about them. These are like taboo. They're abominable, okay? Yes, there are certain sins that are, they are abomination to God when we talk about this issue of sexual immorality. So he's basically describing all different kinds of ways. And then at the end, he talks about revelings and we could say this would be like a big wild party where people are acting like they have no restraint so he he describes this five different ways five different ways you think he's kind of trying to get the point across that this is a problem then then he describes uh, the issue of, of anger nine different ways he uses words like hatred Variance, people who are just love to be in conflict with other people, emulation. The idea is that someone is trying to stir up conflict with other people, wrath, murder, strife, sedition, heresies, envyings. These are all different ways of describing how anger can manifest itself. You know, some people, anger manifests itself by just explosive fits of rage. And they say terrible things to people. And once they've blown up and they've said what they're going to say, they walk away and it's like, ah, whatever. I don't, I don't have to think about this anymore. Some people, they don't say a word, but they're boiling inside. And boy, when the moment comes where, you know, there's just like a little chink in the armor, it just flows out. And you're like, where in the world did that come from? Like a volcano, it just erupts. Because it's boiling under the surface. Or some people, the way that they, they deal with anger is they just hold this animosity. And it's like they're playing chess. 
and they're making their move so they can undermine a person, they can make life miserable for them, or they can bring people against them, okay? Some people, they're just, they're combative. Doesn't matter what the situation is, they're going to fight over it. The point is this. It's no mistake that out of all the things that Jesus addresses, he says, thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not commit adultery. Why? Because those are two of the most common ways that the lust of the flesh manifests itself. He mentions idolatry and witchcraft. They seem to kind of go together, don't they? And then drunkenness. And by the way, a lot of times drunkenness goes with immorality. Because people aren't thinking clearly because they're intoxicated. And because they're not thinking clearly, they do things that their inhibitions said, don't do that, but the inhibitions are gone because of intoxication. The point is this, lust manifests itself in those kinds of ways. I'll describe it this way. Lust is a kind of covetousness that is bound up in an entitlement that leads to an unlawful attempt to satisfy the covetous desire in thought or action. So here are the words that I want you to keep in your mind. Covetous. I want something that does not belong to me I want something that is forbidden and there's like an infinite number of things that we could want that are forbidden to us okay but that's what lust is I want something that is forbidden another word is the word entitlement I deserve I deserve something I've not been given I mean a lot of times the reason we become angry is because we feel that we're entitled to a certain kind of response from somebody, a certain kind of behavior, a certain arrangement of circumstances, a certain favor, and when we don't get what we believe we're entitled to, guess what happens? Boom, we explode. Or we get quiet and we try to get even. We can see this entitlement is something that creates anger. Well, let me tell you that sexual temptation is a big-time entitlement problem. When someone is bound by sexual sin, they're basically saying, I deserve, I have the right to do whatever I want to please myself. Even though I'm married, even though I'm not married, even though God says no, I have the right to do what I want. It's the height of arrogance and entitlement. I deserve... Something that God says no. It's unlawful. It attempts to satisfy the covetous desire in a forbidden way. Now when I say unlawful, I don't mean like, like the United States of America says, thou shalt not and here you're going to go to jail if you do that. Though some things would actually fall into that category. But when I mean unlawful, I mean God says no. God forbids it. And then the words thought and action. It's not just what we do. It's how we think. It's patterns of thought that lead to those actions. And so lust is covetous, it's entitled, it it, it, it embraces what is forbidden. It can be in the thoughts and we we can hide it from everybody. But we cannot hide it from God. And at some point, you know what God does? He says, all right, it's gonna have to come out. And then everybody finds out. And sometimes it's because of the actions we take. Sometimes it's just because we've become so entitled that we just, we do something that 
We just think we can get away with it. We think we have the right to do something. So what's the difference? I'm going to, eh, I'm going to stop there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm going to stop there because I think if I get into this, I'll be here for an hour. So let me, let me go ahead and, and just give you some final thoughts, and then we'll come back to those last two questions, Lord willing, next week. Some final thoughts. We must understand what the Scripture teaches about these areas. I think about what it says in 1 Thessalonians. It says that we should know how to possess our vessel and sanctification and honor. And it says not to defraud one another. It's it's amazing how it's written. In other words, you've got to learn how to control yourself. Whether you're a teenage boy, teenage girl, whether you're in your 50s, whether you're in your 80s, it doesn't matter. Whether you're married, whether you're not married, We've got to learn to control our thoughts. We've got to learn to control our passions. We've got to learn to control our behaviors and the patterns of life that we go down. Lord willing, next week we'll talk about that a little bit more. But we need to understand what the Bible has to say about it. Number two, they're very personal. Uh, the, The things that are talked about in these verses are very personal and the effects of sinful choices in these areas are very painful and very destructive. I don't, I, I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, I, the other day I saw this commercial. They were trying to sell um, a fire blanket. <laughs> you ever seen a fire blanket? All right. Basically, you, you have these people, they're, they're, they're cooking in the kitchen, and all of a sudden there's like the, 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 uh, the pot's on fire, okay? And it's just like flame just pouring out of it. I remember one time I was, I was cooking burgers. I was, I, was, I was doing burgers in, in my backyard, and all of a sudden there was a grease fire, and it was just like flames just Pouring. I had to go, go get a fire extinguisher and blow that thing out. But they, in the thing, they, 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 they show you, you know, this fire coming and they just get the blanket. They just throw it over and boom, it's, it's gone just like that. And then, and then like, this could be you or this could be you. And then they have like a house that's just like an inferno, okay? And there's all these lights coming. Well, here's the simple fact. A house burning to the ground starts with a spark. A spark. In the chimney, hopefully not mine, in a chimney, a spark in an electrical outlet, something on a stove. That's how it starts. And when it starts, it's containable. But there comes a point when it's not. And when it's not, you got to get out of the way. Very dangerous. And so the effects of sinful choices in these areas are very destructive. We must talk and we must walk in godly paths in these areas. There is no room for compromise. We have to establish personal boundaries in our relationships and not push against those boundaries. There are certain places you should just never go. Never go. There are men in this room that should get rid of their smartphones and get flip phones and make sure that your wife has full access to your computer at any time. You say, well, how do you know that? I'm just, just throwing it out there. I'm sure that if the statistics are right, there's a couple of guys in here that needed to hear that. Or on the live stream today that needed to hear that. We've got to establish personal boundaries. There's no room to excuse or justify sin in these areas. You know, we kind of sometimes play with stuff. We just kind of push along the edges. You push along the edge, guess what? just a matter of time that boundary's gone 
And you take the next step, and then that boundary is gone. You take the next step, and guess what? The end result, as the Bible says, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth what? Death. Very destructive. There's no room to compartmentalize our lives. Lots and lots of people have like the church box and the God box, and then they have the me box. <laughs> and I can, I can have the me box, and I can do anything I want in the me box, and then there's the God box, and I do all the God stuff there. And you say, nah, people, yeah, very common. It's very easy. In fact, sometimes what we do in the God box gives us the ability to bomb our conscience in the me box. Somebody says, I pray a lot, I read a lot, I tell people about Jesus. I do this and I do this and I do this for God. Certainly, he can overlook those things. You know, even though I'm doing those things, God's blessing me in these areas, so I must be okay. Very easy to think in such a way. There's no room for that. We have to be honest and clean in the way we relate to other people. We need to treat others with honor and dignity. We have to lay the foundation for a strong marriage and build on it. And so, Lord willing, next week we'll come back to this and you'll hear those things again uh, with some more information leading up to that, okay? Let's bow for a word of prayer and then we will have our prayer time. Father, as we think about the word of God, I pray that you'll take these truths and impress them deeply on our souls. I know that your desire is that we would walk in integrity as people. That we would have strong and vibrant homes, that we would love our spouse, our children, that we would create an environment in our homes where our children can grow and thrive and when we send them out, they will establish strong and vibrant homes. Our society needs strong families. I just pray that you'll help us to turn away from evil and to embrace what is good and to love what is good. And I pray that we would do it by your enabling. We ask it all in Christ's name, amen.